Welcome to Arvid's Almanac, a podcast hosted by queer settlers navigating decolonial healing through herbal medicine and myth, queerness and magic, astrology and ancestral connection. My name is Rue McDonald. I'm a non-binary witch, place and story-based learning facilitator uh, through the Queer Directions Learning Center here on Lekwungen territories, so-called Victoria, BC. I'm Micah McDonald, they, he, a clinical herbalist, ecologist, and writer living in Abenaki territory in Vermont. I'm Kenzie. I use pronouns ZK, they, she, an intuitive herbalist, sex posse, pleasure activist, gender fluid mermaid, mother of a Scorpio siren, and steward of Wild Faith Wellness and the Sex Herbalist. Hello again, friends. Um, this episode is a discussion between Rue and I because Kenzie had to step away to tend to the spiritual needs of a, a friend who just had a baby. And so in this episode, we discuss special topics related to reviving storytelling and cultural innovation in animist and diaspora traditions. We start with Rue telling us a little bit about the storytelling event that they just went to a few weeks ago. And from there, we talk about some of the sticky topics related to how to balance the need for honoring the traditions of our ancestors uh, without appropriating and also without getting stuck in conservatism. So yeah, it's a pretty great discussion. I hope you like it. And here it goes. Totally. So this was a gathering um, of activists and and folks doing ancestral healing reclamation work um, in response to a call to action. And I'll I'll do. I need to reach out to ask exactly where this call to action is. I personally have been called to this action by my own elders and teachers. Um, so it was very in line with my values um, from other. Indigenous folks who I've had the honor to learn from. And uh, the call to action was to culturally ground our, our activist movements. And so that was the the intention was to celebrate and reanimate our our um, fire festivals, starting with Lunasa. And so um, we gathered to feast, process food, to... Uh, think about how we wanted to govern ourselves um, in ways that were in support of Indigenous hereditary leadership, in ways that were um, culturally grounded, guided by story, guided by by deep resourceness in in our in our ancestral ways of being as we could imagine into those ways of being. And so there was, uh, once it got dark, this was a bit after the story, but we even had like feats of strength. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, wrestling. And uh, I, got, I was challenged to an archery, uh, archery challenge. Oh we didn't God. have time for it, but you know, those are the kind of things that um, we were there to also do, because um, the story goes uh, that Lou 
named this time of year in honor of his mother, Taltu, who is a Firbolg goddess. And there was a time when he was king where the land went to waste. And it was tradition of that culture that that responsibility falls upon the head of the king. And so he needed to make amends with the land. Somehow the sovereignty of the land had been neglected or there was, they, were, they came out of relationship. The relationship between the governance and the land was out of balance. And so the land, you know, turned away from the people. And this is when Taltu, his mother, went and began to rip up the trees, rip up the forests to make new fields for the feeding of the people because everyone was starving. And she died out, out doing that. And so there was this acknowledgement of her sacrifice of the sacrifice of the mother um, for, for the good of the people. Uh, and also there's this added layer of, of being Firbolg, being there before the Tuacha de Danan and her needing to rip up the forests of her ancestral lands that I noticed and felt that grief as well as an added layer of that story. And, and so he honored her by, by honoring her. Her, her last wish was that at her wake that people played games <laughs> and had competitions and and so we honored those those uh, those traditions as well of having games and, and feasting and telling stories and having a gay old time <laughs> oh that sounds fantastic um, and then I I just wanted to dive a little bit into these tensions that I experienced and to hear what you think about this, Micah, because you're also like tending this beautiful edge of, of deep research and um, being gr grounded in the ways that we revitalize ancestral reclamation practices and I wanted to have a little bit of, of banter back and forth um, about the tensions that I felt in the community um, with folks who are coming from a more traditionalist purist lens of like, if you don't have a grandfather in Ireland teaching you these things, like a direct connection then you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't, you couldn't, you, there's all these, you know, um, ways that people are worried and afraid of traditions getting watered down, um, being appropriated, um, being colonized, uh, which is also really, really valid. Um, and then there's the folks who are, you know, having deep spiritual connection and um, take a more creative, innovative, less of a purist stance. And there was, 
present there, those tensions, not only within the people, but then the ancestors who were present were also not agreeing. And there was such a rift. And there was, um, I felt a lot of fear in myself, um, having connections to, to storytellers in my lineage. Absolutely. Like my uh, great grandfather, Kennedy Story Spence, was with me so, so tenderly the whole time, just reminding me who I am and the lineages that I come from, um, from the lands where the kayak winters in the Isle of Skye. But at the same time, there was this big fear that I felt well up in me of doing it wrong. <laughs> Um, and my voice closed up and the stories didn't want to come. <laughs> they were like, nope, this isn't where we want to be presenced. And so I have a very deep relationship with these stories and these songs and I, I always listen to when they want to come and when they don't. Um, so I guess also the question that came to me is like, how do we authenticate unmitigated and unmediated um, relationship with the unseen? That's such a good question. I have no <laughs> answer to that, but me neither. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, something something Murphy Robinson said one time in a class really, really nailed it for me because I had for years now of thinking about like ancestral connection and also just like spiritual exploration um, was like, well, these deities, like if we're talking about deities, the deities kind of like to be respected and catered to. And they may not care as much about cultural or ancestral boundaries as we humans do. And yet that is not an excuse to transgress like cultural or ancestral boundaries because humans care about that and humans are also important. It's like there's not not a hierarchy of like, uh, well, the gods say it's okay, so therefore it's okay. It's like yeah, the gods might say it's okay, but the cultures that those traditions are coming from say it's not okay. So we actually have to weigh both of those things equally. Yeah, so then should I even be like working with story? Should I be even learning songs, you know? From that standpoint, probably not. I don't know. I I don't know if it's an easy answer. Like, I think what would make me feel comfortable is just getting consent by like at least one person, you know, from that lineage. And I mean, these days it might be easier than ever before, especially if we can't travel over there, you know, with the internet and stuff. Um, Like I think in particular finding a teacher, like that is a accessible thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, everybody has a different opinion everybody will have a different opinion and we can never get a group consensus on the yes or no. But 
at least having one personal connection would make me feel a lot better about it. I mean, that's what you have done um, with your teacher, Robert, and your mentor. Well, Robert Lovelace is indigenous to Turtle Island and is claimed by the Ardoch Algonquin First Nation. And he's taught me a lot about story and how stories really do have their own spirits and want to be honored in certain ways and that they are cyclical, that they exist in whole time. And, and when they are ready, they like a, like a mushroom body, um, birth forth. <laughs> I love that. That's how I work with story. Um, and just to share my own spiritual experience, I have done ancestral connection work and worked to develop relationships and have been approached by four lineage holders, story lineage holders in each of my four lineages, my maternal, paternal on my mom's side, maternal, paternal on my father's side. And so from each of these different storied lineages, I work with an ancestor and have a check and balance through that but am still seeking a teacher or a mentor who has a body, a physical incarnate body, who is a lineage holder, who has a direct connection to the lands from where these stories have emerged. Because although I've searched and gone to workshops and tried to meet people and follow those threads, I haven't found a queer, friendly mentor, someone who is open, has the time. And I also found when I was looking, things were quite cliquey and not in resonance with my values. So I'm still looking. And I also did, when I was working with Kayak especially, I reached out to a Scottish story holder named Jude Lally, and I sent her a bunch of the work that, that we were doing mm. um, and just like offered for her to listen. And I was so grateful that she found time to do so and and offer some feedback. And what she said was, this is different from what I've seen before this is interesting because it's weaving these stories in a way that's useful for you now and that our ancestors were kind of always doing that absolutely Um, and that these deities that live in these particular localities don't necessarily exist in geographies uh, beyond the geographies that they emerged from. And I thought that was really, really interesting. So I did seek out that kind of accountability. Like I actually, this is something that I, I almost do like unconsciously (laughs) is that I'll be like, like looking and, and kind of looking for checks and balances as I go both from the unseen world and from relational folk 
who are doing work in this in similar realms and um i think that's something that i could cultivate even more is those kind of checks and balances and in in each of the different lineages of story that i'm working with and that's something that i feel like i don't i don't think it's about not engaging it's about continually seeking accountability and continually being in seeking relationship i don't know how does that sit with you well i had a question about what she said did she mean that the story and the deities and the archetypes don't exist in places that they are not from is that what she meant that's what she said yeah because that's a pretty that's an extreme point of view actually I've never, yeah. I've never heard somebody be that extreme before. And I know a lot of people who, who experience the contrary. I, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also, well, because think about, um, I, I have interacted with Yoruba diaspora religions because I, I drum in that tradition. And so, um, if that were true, then like Vodun and Santeria wouldn't exist, right? And it wouldn't be a vibrant, like successful, beautiful, powerful tradition, which they are, of course. So I just don't, I don't know. There's something, there's something else to that. I, I get where she's coming from, but it's, a, it's an extreme statement. It is. And what she offered instead was, getting into the local relationships like that there are crone exists of course like kayak is crone crone exists in every landscape um every every culture there's crone and so connecting with crone where i live is what she invited me to do and it sent me on this on a journey to um find a story and find geographies that are so resonant with kayak and it totally deepened my relationship to place and i'm so grateful for that invitation cool that's a that's a great way to think about it um well it it also brought to mind um it might have been from the Blarney Balladish podcast, and it might have been from something, some other resource I was listening to, but that um, the Irish, when when they have come over to uh, North America, of course, brought their traditions with them, and there's this one place in Northeast. Canada, I think it's Nova Scotia, might be around Cape Breton, um, where they they had like an enclave, like an Irish enclave, basically. And so all of the traditions were kept alive and, and kind of practiced there. And including a lot of the quote unquote superstitions and a lot of the beings traveled with them. So um they were talking about you know the fairies did come with them and they had all of the same problems that they did with the fairies that they did in ireland you know and um 
so that and that there were still the same kind of like hauntings that would happen and you know they just brought those beings with them basically so um it's interesting i i it's nuanced i think there's not an easy answer i've heard of that too of um stories especially in nova scotia um where where settlers have brought the little people with them and uh there's also like little people in the mythologies here i I don't pretend to understand or um under like no um i have my own personal gnosis of course (laughs) about um respecting those folks and something that i learned from kayak herbarium was when you are in a house there are already beings there and so creating altars and leaving food for them is just 101 respect <laughs> and so i practice that and it seems to be a nice way of keeping my my things from going missing and you know things from getting messed up and uh ruined or lost and <laughs> that's um but that's just my own practice. I really like you asking those these questions because they've been on my mind for a long time too and I don't yeah the, just the general the general insight that yes it is possible to appropriate our ancestors culture in a in a non-consensual way that that is totally possible. And I think it was Brian who was saying um from grounded connections was saying um couple of weeks ago that when there is cultural revival movements happening in Ireland, it often is done in a way where Gaelic society is kind of somewhat homogenized and then brought back in homogenized fashion. And so we as settlers trying to bring things back for us are definitely participating in that because we don't have kind of like local manifestations of that culture to deal with we don't have the opportunity yeah which is so painful yeah (laughs) and when I when I introduce the stories I I always like to to just acknowledge that the beings that I'm talking about are vast and their roots that they come from are diverse and so the way that they're going to show up and be channeled is the way that they are going to show up and be channeled um and that it isn't the totality of what this being is to like all the people that this being has been to. <laughs> wow, that's a really convoluted way of saying it, but like acknowledging what's missing um, in what is being put forward and acknowledging my own that I am a story weaver, that I am weaving these stories and they are coming through me through my lens yeah. Um, yeah. is also important to me. Yeah, and we were talking with um, a fellow here, um, Jesse Bruchak, who is a um, Abenaki speaker, and he is an excellent teacher, and he's really teaching dozens of people to to speak Abenaki, Western Abenaki again. And we were talking once with him about should we or should we not be sharing Abenaki stories as settlers, and you know, it's just his opinion, right? But he was very much like, yes, because these stories are going to be forgotten, if not. 
yet you should always say this is my my telling you know this is my understanding of this story it's not the story right it's just my version of the story so it's very much like taking ownership for what you say um yeah i think that's really important um yeah i like to say it is my understanding before i say something or um I have like these like precursors to whenever I like share a story yeah. in in that there's like an, an a shared understanding that this is coming from me and I take responsibility for it and I become part of the lineage of that storytelling um by by reanimating it and reweaving it into present relevance and I think that's what being part of an alive culture is all about Absolutely. Yeah. And well, I'll say, first of all, that like, I don't yet feel comfortable sharing Abenaki stories. Like I haven't, uh, yeah, I'm not there yet. Um, I have to, I have to really think about that critically for myself because I know that so many settlers just take that for granted and do it in inappropriate and non-consensual ways. So I want to like make super sure I'm not doing that because that's the more common way to do it. (laughs) Um, Okay, but then that aside, like just when engaging with diaspora traditions of any kind, like we, there tends to be a rigidity, like the further, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this, but like the further removed from the actual living tradition, the more rigid it becomes. Yeah. This is something I wanted to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Again, like my interaction with, you know, Yoruba diaspora traditions, which again, I'm not from that lineage, but um, my teachers have um, just shared with me their interactions with folks both here in the Americas and also um, in in like West Africa and then in um, the Caribbean. So that those who feel like they are really inside the tradition, they are, they feel like an authentic connection to that tradition. They feel much more flexible to make changes Mm -hmm. and to be flexible. And like, it's because it's, it's literally alive, right? It's a living tradition. There's nothing dead about it. It's, it's, it's fluid, you know, alive things are fluid. And so when it becomes, when it starts to die, that's when rigidity happens um, because you're trying to be protective of the way it is. And then like, I feel like that slowly kills it, you know? Um, And it's a real, but it's real because you also don't want it. Like you were saying, you also don't want it to be watered down and deauthenticated and and falsified, which happens so often in modernity. So it's, I totally understand both. It's a, it's, we got to balance it. Yeah, and I just, whew, I got a big wave of grief. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to sit with that here. Yeah. Oh, this big wave of grief around um, the ways that colonization has impacted and like cultures of whiteness have um, impacted the ways that we interact with our, our own ancestral cultures in, in the ways that rigidity and gatekeeping and uh, mm. and, and control 
have have been really introduced um and it is from a place of scarcity like not enoughness and the reality is is there isn't enough elders we were talking about this last episode like we are in this mm. dire straits for elders and and then we have young young queers stepping up to tend the spiritual edges of our community who are so marginalized and have lived through hell and so are now like have had to go to these stories have had to survive to like to make our way through these intense times and and so now coming back to these communities um to tend these spiritual edges um is like really really powerful i've never experienced a feeling of belonging like that mm. um to even though i even though i haven't been in this community for a long time about five years knowing people suddenly there's just been this amazing shift and this call to action for settlers to culturally ground their activism and so all these amazing activists that i've been working with and musicians and intellectuals researchers musicians uh, i already said musicians but there was a lot of musicians awesome <laughs> amazing warriors people who who um who are hunters who are farmers you know all coming together to to culturally ground our activism and build meaningful movements and then in come the queers <laughs> wow um to to tend this spiritual edge but it's so vulnerable oh it's yeah. so vulnerable to tend that edge because people we are all so dissociated from from our ancestors and from our emotions and it is a product of whiteness and so coming in with that level of vulnerability it was hard it was hard mm. so scary especially given the tensions that were there around traditionalism and purism and and the very very real feelings of people in ireland about how the diaspora are 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 animating uh, traditions of our ancestors very very real and also very very valid um and just also want to acknowledge that everybody's brains work differently everybody's got different neurodivergencies and so have different experiences of of what they feel safe doing what and, and the pathways they feel safe going into ancestral reclamation and, and connection. And that is also really, really valid. Some people really need rules. Some people really need to have these really strong, like this person told me, therefore it is true, um, kind of rigidity. And that is also, there's a place for that. And I was just like shut down and scared because I didn't think there was going to be a place for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, I'm so glad you found that community and I'm so jealous. Like <laughs> get over here. It's so that sounds so beautiful. And I think what is so unique about that that I haven't seen as much around here, there are definitely people like that, but not as like a community is that you're interested in engaging in in, in the in like the knowledge in a traditional way and also kind of reinventing things at least a little bit and political consciousness 
it's, it's really, I don't see a combination of that all that much because what I do see a lot of is kind of your classic new age, like reappropriation and reinvention without a lot of grounding in historicity and right. almost no grounding in political consciousness. And so that mm-hmm. on a, on the one hand has been inspirational and in that they are at least thinking about the past and like old traditions, but also mm-hmm. not completely satisfying for me because I'm always looking for the sources. Where did you get that information? And also how does that interact with the colonial world that we live in, which is usually not discussed except for, you know, maybe the last couple of years, people have started to really think about that. But um, so I'm just like, yeah, that community sounds amazing. It was incredible. The ways that, you know, we, didn't know what was going to happen, but what unfolded was exactly what needed to happen, I think. And we learned so much. Even in introducing ourselves, there was so much grief. Introducing ourselves, who we are, where we come from, and who we're bringing with us, those were the, the opening questions. And there, that was the grief ritual, basically, was like the amount of grief that came up and the amount of like ancestral tensions and fears and triggers that all happen just in that just in that opening um was it was good art (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it it was good art and we learned a lot and it was hard it was hard um and I was like I don't know if I want to go back there I w- I got very shut down and I just had to like refine my sense of belonging mm. within myself cuz I got I got triggered out of it um and went into shutdown mode and I I totally like was able to see the ways that my ancestors were also activated mm. and influencing my shutdown mode of like being afraid to share being afraid to share our stories, being afraid to like claim lineage. (sighs) Wow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. While acknowledging that like, I am not a perfect example of like cultural reclamation. I am not like, I don't, and I don't claim Mm. that I would never, Mm. um, I think only a very specific group of people are down with what I, with how I do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. I think also there was this, you know, I'm a Libra. So I'm just like, ah, tension people, maybe not liking me, but it was this moment where I had to regroup and be like, this is who I am. These are the ancestors and the lineages that I am accountable to. Mm. And some people are not going to be down. And that's okay. And actually, our strength as a movement and in community is our diversity. (laughs) Yeah. And that there's multiple pathways in. Some people will want to do that, like, heady research and be, like, all up here, you know, with the cerebral stuff. Some people, that's going to be their comfort zone and where, and lots of people are going to really love that. And then other people are like, 
that doesn't really make sense. I'm more of like an embodied person. I feel connected to my ancestors when I know like three steps ahead, what's going to happen in a like, you know, frontline situation. Um, that's when they're like, you know, really tapped in and connected or when they're hunting or some people are, are kitchen witches and are preparing the feasts and that's, that's their like, and, and obviously there's crossover, but I think what I, what I personally came to is that the, there can be diversity and multiple pathways in and a place for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> there has to be. Um, yeah. kind of like what we were talking about with the the astrological archetypes related to activism. activism. Like there are there are archetypes that need to be manifested in any situation. And there's multiple ones that that fit certain roles. Yeah. So many good points. Um I guess one of the things that I don't yet have like a way to connect to my ancestors and I just have a hard time perceiving them. I'm, I, yeah, I don't, I, I'm personally not able to go into trance and have it work for me. It just doesn't, I don't know, I'm too rationalistic, I guess. I'm trying to work on it. <laughs> but one of the cool things that when we talked with Chris last time, he listened to the recording and he was like, oh my God, I totally hear Uncle Bob. In both, you know, like the way that both Chris and I have this certain way of speaking, he was like, I totally hear the Mackenzie Farnham's in our voices. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's so beautiful. I love that. Um, and that my, our ancestors are living through us, even if we have no idea. Oh, always, always, yeah. whether we're aware of it or not, it's yeah. just, we're so connected. Totally. And that made me feel so good because like, I didn't know Uncle Bob that well, but he was just a fantastic human being, you know, and he was a storyteller too. Yeah. Serious storyteller. He loved to tell these really funny jokes. So anyway, I'll have to contemplate that a little bit. Um, I love that. Yeah. I really resonate with that too. And um, something that just popped up in my brain is stories from my Nana about my great grandfather, um, mm. was that he was a storyteller. Mm. Um, so is my Nana. She used to tell all sorts of amazing animist stories, um, wow. without even acknowledging that they were animists. They mostly oh. involved Max the seagull. And me and <laughs> no way. <laughs> we had, um, we had stories on our side of Sammy the seagull. That's so cool. That is so freaking cool. <laughs> oh my god, you should tell a Max the Seagull story. <laughs> oh, I would love. I gosh, would I re even remember Max the Seagull became like the king of the seagulls. <laughs> That's what I remember, and he used oh to god. have all sorts of tasks for Ian and I to do, and I love that all sorts of adventures. And that's, see, that's culture. Yeah. That's the essence of it is, um, you know, they didn't pass down these traditional stories. Yeah. They didn't. They passed down a way of transmuting pain and, and despair and, mm. like, 
all these hard feelings into joy. That is the uh, that is the the art of storytelling and and bringing humor. That's what he did. Is uh, Kennedy story? Spence would just you know have a story for anything that happened during that day and 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 bring it into this this humorous place. And you know they had a hole in the wall, and so and they did couldn't afford to fix it. You know. And so one time they were like, where is the chamber pot? And they were all looking around and somehow the chamber pot had ended up in the hole in the wall. <laughs> you know, like things like that. That's what my Nana remembers. It's just, yeah. you know, he would just, I was like, what kind of stories would he tell? Because I'm like, I want the stories. And then yeah. she was like, actually, it's just about existing in a certain way. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe take think two things is um, the difference between like low culture and high culture mm. and that there's always been that tension, at least in the European, like in the West. So there is like this high, uh, high medicine and low medicine, you know, like high medicine is the medicine you learn in schools and folk medicine is low medicine taught, you know, by your grandma and just like you know, the witch in the woods that you go to if you can't get healed by the doctor, you know? So there's always been that differentiation. But I also think of it in terms of just culture. You know, you have folk culture and then you have um, this kind of high culture that you're taught in school or you're taught by the radio or the television. So in modern society, there's almost no folk culture because we are kind of taught that like, vulgar you know uh, vulgar culture which is what the, the word means just common so vulgar culture is like disgusting or you know inappropriate or just uh unevolved you know yada yada um and yet that's where the real that's where the life is and so i have this tension like i'm an intellectual so i love certain high culture traditions but i also see the value in all of these folk stories and this folk culture and folklore. And I love both of these things. And I, um, yeah, I want to engage with both. And um, I, it also made me think a couple of things in that something that you said was like, yeah, maybe they don't, maybe our ancestors stopped teaching traditional stories, but they brought their, their worldviews with them to frame the way they tell stories mm -hmm. so like the way that they told a max the seagull story might have been similar to the shape of a story that was traditional and third point is that folk culture seems even in modernity i've noticed this folk culture is preserved in children in, yeah. in children's culture like nobody ever taught us, nobody ever sit us in a class in elementary school and said, here's how to, how to do cat's cradle with a string. Mm. No, there's no teacher that taught you that kids teach kids that, yeah. right. That's completely organic. And that's probably been going on for hundreds of years. You know, there's certain songs that kids sing to each other that are rarely sung between like, adults and kids they probably are but 
there's certain songs that just recycle over and over again, but they're not part of official culture. They're not part of high culture. And that is really interesting to me. Mm, mm. That is really interesting. The, to pay attention to the cultural memes that the kids are, uh, <laughs> are proliferating is and very telling. Mm-hmm. And they're old. They're so old. I mean, think about Ring Around the Rosie. Oh, that's yeah. pretty old. Yeah. Yeah, it's from Plague Times. It's from the last Plague Time. So it's like, why, why is that so catchy? And why have we still been singing it for this long? It's cool. Oh, yeah. And Gangnam Style, you know, so old, so ancient. Yeah. It must be connecting to something, you know, like yeah. what they, what they like pick up and find as like, yeah. as, um, as, really entrancing like there's there's gotta be something yeah really ancient about about like the ways that memes are picked up and proliferated amongst children yeah (laughs) yeah well I'm I'm living with a toddler now and so it's interesting it's interesting to see like what kinds of things really stick in their brain Mm. and like songs like simple songs do Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's not just, it's not the words, you know, the words could mean nothing to them, but okay. the, the notes and the syllables have a certain rhythm that's very easy to absorb. And, and then eventually they'll understand what the words mean. Yeah. But I just find that really interesting to, to just watch because yeah, we're very musical animals. Right. And really kids are so observant around cadence and um uh and they really remember like certain characters that they like and remember certain stories and i just i want to presence uh some really sweet story time we had elder story time last night and um my partner's elder Ashtar told the story um, about Baba Yaga, but a Baba Yaga set in the south in the swamps. Oh, I swamp witch. <laughs> I love that. And it was all beautifully, like, very casually held in, in ritual container. And we all just laid down and listened to the story. And um, my friend Mika and uh, their child uh, were there and just listening and getting to be part of that. And this was all online. It's so interesting the kind of technologies that we have now to transmit story and to create experiences of of elder to child transmission of story and knowledge and like that kind of feeling, you know, of of a grandmother tending the children with story oh and little little kiddo was like is there another story tomorrow you know it's so wonderful and I feel like I'm and I'm witnessing this in in Zade 
they're just primed for story. They're like, just give it to me. I want it so badly. You know, we're just made for it. We are totally made for stories. And like Kenzie one day just needed Zade to like calm down and focus. And so she told her day, like her, it was a pretty intense day, but she Mm -hmm. told her day story as if it was this epic, you know, with the same cadence and tone and Zade was just totally absorbed you know yeah totally calmed down and just was silent listening so Mm -hmm. there's there's just an ability to just sit quietly and listen and I think that what's I mean there's a lot of sad things about modernity but what is very sad is that we don't expect kids to sit down and just listen quietly and they can you know they can do that but we don't give them the right environment for that to, for that to be available to them. So I don't know, storytelling, it, at least for kids, but for adults too, I think is really like helping us revive like this deep, like pattern in us for listening. In most of my workshops um, with, even with adults, you know, I get the feedback of, um, I don't remember the last time I, I sat down and just got to listen to a story. Wow. That's, you know, that's pretty, that's kind of sad too, <laughs> that the adults aren't being told stories when stories are like the lifeblood of my people. I know that I can yeah. feel it in me. Like it just bursts from me even when I, I'm like, I don't know if this is the the way I should tell it or if I'm the right person, but it just like, yeah. Me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it makes me think about the the difference between so like many slash all modern people listen, I mean watch movies. So that's like our modern version of storytelling, but there's something very qualitatively different about that. Oh, and I yeah. think I mean one of the things that I think about is that it, it kind of like spoon feeds you um imagination. So you don't actually have to exercise your own imagination. And so people just kind of lack imagination in this culture, I think, because they're just like, you don't have to really imagine at all. We're going to just send you a package full of images. Here it is, you know? Um, And then, and then the difference between that and like reading a story and then the difference between listening to a story, like these are all pretty different things. Or watching a story. Because when we arrived at the Kaylee, it was a big theater in the round situation. And we weren't even sure if we were going to tell the story. We said, okay, we're going to go and see how it, how we feel. And we ended up going in like full drag, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just outfits. And, um, and there was this lull in the, in the group. And out of the crowd, I just heard my dear friend go, I want to hear Rue's story. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear Rue's story. And I had this black hat with, it was a big rim and this veil over my head, over my face. And I came out of the crowd, full theater witch mode. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Oh, we want to hear a story. <laughs> Well, to tell this story, I'm going to need a snake, you know, and just, and then, and then it began. And my friend 
came out in in Snake and was embodying Snake. And then I said, I'm going to need Lou. And so Otis came out as Lou. And, and there was something so powerful about presencing those deities among us um, that creates, it just brings a gathering to a different level. It's almost like a spectacle. Um, and, and the story, as I told it, they acted it out. Mm. And there was a point where Lou and Krom Duve kind of have this melding where Lou then finds Snake within himself. Mm. And I said, everyone stand up. <laughs> And I got everyone to stand up, even bless them, even the elders stood up and I invited them to find snake within them. And I told them that it lives between their tongue and their assholes. (laughs) 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 And You know, just like made a queer sex joke in the middle of it (laughs) and then caught it, you know, with some gentleness of like, And you can engage with this at any level that feels good and right in your body. Like you just follow, follow what your body needs. And um, yeah, we played with Snake. And I think because we were an, um, an activist group, there was an interesting interplay and an understanding of like the, the subjugation of Snake beings within the Irish and Scottish culture mm. that people were like really getting it (laughs) like the power of presencing that subjugated god that in some stories comes in the form of the snake and so that's how i chose to weave this particular story wow um and then inviting people to find the subjugated and like oppressed parts of themselves you know and that's that's just what came. I everything I was in another place. It was really nuts. Wow. I don't remember everything that I said because it was just like from this other consciousness. I wish <laughs> it me, was that's there. How, that's how I experienced it. Yeah. And um yeah. and then we were all dancing with Snake and and then I just felt called to be like, and this is like the spell seed that I that I plant this night, you know, the story about coming into wellness in relationship to the sovereignty of the land. Um, and, and then I asked if there was any musicians there that had a snaky song and my friend Beth stood up and said, well, I have a snaky song. Mm-hmm. And somebody came with an impromptu drum and we all just like moved our bodies with snake, with the story and just integrated it. And it was, very very um it was very powerful for me as a storyteller and a huge honor uh, huge humbling to to be welcomed into to invite people into that embodiment and into that um relationship to that story and and so we danced it and then we had and then it kind of went back into the cadence of the kaylee and uh it was I that's where I felt a huge amount of belonging I was like this is this is my role (laughs) you know oh wow yeah this is what I've been brought here to do you know is to 
this, tend this spiritual edge in community and be a theater witch and bring these stories alive in our bodies. And although that story, like, I don't have a grandfather who told me that story and carried that lineage. It's a story that I learned from sacred texts and from primary sources. And then I rewove it because I was like, there is no way that Lou went down and dominated that snake. I don't think that snake could be dominated. Mm. It had to have been a dance. (laughs) It had to have been a a reciprocity because that is how land comes to life is if is when we're in reciprocity and not dominating not just focusing on taking and so that's how i rewove it and i had been working with this story for a year and i felt like it was respectful and i hope i dearly hope that that was how it was received um and at the same time i can't control how people are going to receive it there was lots of excitement around it. There was lots of people who who were really, really moved and saying things like, "We could have been at a you know at a fort in Ireland thousands of years ago." You know, this is what the ancestors did. <laughs> you know, that kind of reflection was really affirming, and I think very very resonant with with my understanding as well as that this this is probably what would happen the, the weirdos the traveling weirdos would come in with their outfits and and bring a story and and invite people in and and go from place to place and that story would change as it goes and would change in relationship to place yeah and thinking about what you were talking about previously in terms of reviving stories and maybe not having a direct connection to where they came from, if we inherited the stories and if we felt obligated to tell the stories the way that they were taught to us, like some of them are patriarchal, uh, colonial, you know, queer phobic, or just violent or encourage um, harmful relationships with nature. Yeah. So like, even if we did inherit those, we would have to change them in order to fit into this um, anti-patriarchal and anti-colonial paradigm that's now being born. So um, I think, I think the principle is good. Like we should have connections and at the same time, the connections themselves can't require us to um, yeah, be beholden to like uh, conservatism in in the story messages um because yeah some some of the messages are like not not good and not compatible with the kind of world that we want to move forward with and Mm -hmm. and i think that those of us who are really interested in like un unmaking our whiteness have to be grappling with um like unmaking and, and unraveling the messages that are taught in certain stories and that when our people were colonized, they might have uh, gotten more patriarchal or they might have added a layer of colonial ethics to these stories that previously mm-hmm. did not, but we'd never know, you know. Um, and at the same time, like, 
you know, Gaelic society was patriarchal. It has its own inherent <laughs> problems, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, just like what you were doing with Lou and the snake, having this not be like a domination story, but something more beautiful than that, that's, that's what we got to do. We can't just like take it for granted and, and, you know, spit it back out the way it was given to us. Sometimes we need to change it. Yeah. So that it's more relevant. And I also think it's like actually honoring Plom Duve way more to tell the story that way and to be actually very respectful of that being that has been so long subjugated and, and, and demonized within Christianized culture. Um, you know, that the, the one holding the sovereignty of the land and holding boundaries being like no humans, you don't get to just destroy, 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 and still get all the food to feed yourselves. You don't get to do that. You know, that that character, that archetype is being subjugated. No, absolutely not. (laughs) No way. No, sir. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, it's so important to be thinking critically about these stories. And oh, the other thing I was going to say is that um, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like we're in a renaissance right now. Absolutely. And a renaissance of like pre-colonial cultures mm-hmm. and of, of like people all over the place are doing this and not just Euro- European diaspora, but like people indigenous to North America are doing this, like other folks of different lineages are doing this. We're all, a lot of us are trying to re-engage with what occurred and what was alive before colonization. Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. I'm just so excited by it. Um, there's so much richness and it is so, you know, it's political too. You can't do this and not be political about it. And that's what I love. Um, and it is so, it's a, it's a criticality of modernity and capitalism, colonialism in a way that you don't, it's so much deeper and richer and more embodied and spiritual than, you know, your, your classic like atheist anarchist situation or, um, you know, your, right, your Marxist, um, Hashtag barf. are your are your iso uh, proselytizing folks on the street like it's 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 so much deeper than that and i think it's way more powerful because there's something that every human being can connect to with regard to that everybody shares that lineage even if they don't recognize that um yeah it's not foreign you know it's not foreign to anybody. They owe, every person has an ancestral connection to some kind of pre-colonial lineage. And that's, mm-hmm. that's like, that's an open door to anybody to, to engage with it, basically. Yeah. yeah. And to be in a, in a cultural poverty, in cultural poverty as people who are living out whiteness, um, I can totally understand how settler anarchists, activist circles have turned away from from religion because that's 
what we got, what we had, you know, is like this really oppressive religion, but then coming at our movements without any spiritual grounding is equally probably like brings up issues, <laughs> I think for me. And I don't want to say that you have to be spiritual to be an activist. No, but spiritual groundings are really important and resources in these incredible ways. And I would suggest, I would suggest that it is more important than um, it has been previously thought <laughs> to have spiritual, our own diverse spiritual groundings that inform the ways that we can keep our bodies well and our hearts well and our minds well in order to show up in more sustainable and uh, kind and passionate and channeled ways uh, in our activism. I just see so much possibility there. Yeah, and I think that Indigenous people in North America right now are teaching us just that. It's like the kind of hardship and genocide that they've had to deal with over and over again, like their spiritual traditions are some of the things that have allowed them to continue fighting and and surviving in a beautiful way, including like the current movements. And that all of, you know, that a lot of the current political activism that I'm seeing in those communities are also framing them in terms of spiritual struggles. And that is something I rarely, rarely see in colonial circles. And it's just so much more powerful. You did see that in terms of like Martin Luther King's movements. Um, and the, you know, those were effective, you know, by the way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's something missing definitely in a lot of like left radical circles. And I just listened to a lecture and um, there's a book called Occult Features of Anarchism by Erica Lagalisa. And um, it was really interesting lecture on basically that a lot of um, anarchist and left symbolism is rooted in occultism. And there's like strong historical connections. But when Marxism had a lot of influence on, on anarchism, um, I don't know, that must have been in the 1800s, 19, early 1900s, um, it slowly started to adopt atheism because Marx was really a strong atheist. So before that, like anarchism... Uh, as it existed in the medieval periods was a very anti-church but very spiritual um, and pay you know had a lot of pagan influence and um, yeah it just it, it's so reinforcing to me because I do feel like that animism itself is such a non-hierarchical way of viewing the world and like anarchism is aligned against our hierarchy against hierarchy so and and yet there there can't be any sustainable like and sustained struggle without spirituality but what spirituality exists without hierarchy well yeah like animism that's that's what it is 
some, I was having a conversation, you know that how I mentioned how um, I want to acknowledge where I got the idea <laughs> for the the essence of of the culture around storytelling um, in, I would say, definitely Scottish, I would stretch to say Irish too, is the, the purpose, there's many purposes for story, um, but among them being transmuting pain into joy. And that being like a spiritual technology of of um, of processing really really hard things that have happened in the past, and I was um, chatting at an at an open mic with a traveler from Northern Scotland named Andrew McPhee, <laughs> and he had this very Radagasta Brown vibe about him, <laughs> <laughs> and we were both just talking about our our upbringings and our childhood traumas and <laughs> what we and then when then we started talking about storytelling and the stories that lived in the different places where we grew up um and the differences between the stories that were told in, in the northern isles of scotland where he grew up and the stories that were told in my family growing up and the he, he grew up catholic i grew up protestant and um we were talking about humor and the and the power of humor and storytelling he was just he was just he could tell a joke he was just like it was like rolling out of him like a bubbling stream his jokes about being poor yeah yeah <laughs> he just he could just rhyme them off you know and it was so beautiful i don't know how else to describe yeah. it like i just I really it helped me heal to he hear his stories and his jokes and his ways that he you take something really really hard and really deeply traumatizing and intense and then it's like and it's a funny thing That's <laughs> it just turns it on its head and it mixes like this it puts them in juxtaposition to one another which jars it from being really in, uh, just intense and just dark to something that, okay, and we're, we're, we keep moving. We keep like, you know, moving this through. We don't just sit in the dark with totally. our stories. Totally. Yeah, there's something I think just so Gaelic about that, right? Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, both the Irish and the Scottish have that incredible ability to find humor in the most terrible things. Um, and it is transformative. I was just thinking how humor is this incredible, like natural force of transmuting energy. And I don't really know even how to describe it, but it's something it's edgy, but it's, it's like pushing it to a different side. It's like pushing it from one side to the other. Uh, it's, you know, either way it could be, Oh, we're having a good time, and then you tell a bad joke, and we're now very angry. Or, <laughs> or like, yeah, we're sad. You tell a good joke, and we're now like more mellow or happy. So it's it's just this transformative force. I guess the one thing I wanted to say earlier is that when we were talking about kind of like conservatism in the diaspora in terms of culture and. One of the examples that I wanted to give is is Irish music. And I think that, like, I also play Irish music. Um, and so when going to sessions and stuff, you know, there are sessions all over the world. 
And I think that um, what I've heard at least is that there's a lot more like license to be creative and flexible and innovative when you're in Ireland or with folks who are Irish, like they, they feel the license to like make changes to the tradition. Mm -hmm. And then like over here, we have a, we have a session in town who is just like on the extreme conservative side where not politically, but like in terms of preserving the tradition where like Mm -hmm. they don't allow certain instruments that they feel like are not quote unquote traditional and they don't, um, they're just real hard ass about it and pretty mean. And like, people don't go because they're just so not nice, you know? <laughs> and it's like, what are, what are they trying to accomplish? You know, I mean, I think that they're just talented musicians, right? And so they're, they have a successful like music teaching business and they do what they do well, but um, yeah. There's, the movement. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, like that's kind of inauthentic right? Because like the tradition itself is flexible. And if you think about all the Irish instruments that we now play in Irish music, you know, a lot of them were introduced in the 1900s. You know, what is, what is quote unquote traditional? It's a living, it's a living tradition. You know, the banjo was introduced. That's from uh, the Americas, which was from influence in West Africa. It's like, you know, that's, that's a new instrument. And now it's, you know, Irish banjo is a thing now. So I don't know. It's just. (laughs) I heard about this too. Um, We were singing a Gaelic song and um, I was like, Ooh, maybe some, some harmonies could be nice. And then people were like, Oh, we don't, we can't do harmonies for the song. The song, you can't have harmonies. That's like a British thing. It's like an English thing to do to add harmonies to a song. It's like, that's their teachings. That's how their mentors taught them. And then they said, oh no, if you want to embellish a song, you, uh, you can add like, like you can dance with your voice, but you don't, you don't add harmonies. And I just thought that was really interesting because, um, it goes along with this kind of like more, um, this like different culture of, of when people sang, perhaps it wasn't about people being able to join in and, and add things and, and enrich the sound in a way that was emergent, but it was more about honoring the song itself and the, and the voice that was being channeled and the spirit of the song, which I can see both yeah you know but i think in the same context i'd like to feel both i want to i want to hear i want to hear that singer adding those beautiful delicate um embellishments um and i also want there to be space for emergent collab musical collaboration i think we can have both is what i this says the libra wearing their temperance shirt (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> archetypal of you <laughs> yeah. oh yeah well I, I'm just thinking that might be traditionally true or I, I don't honestly know it might be, might be traditionally true but I've just seen so many examples of, of harmonies in Irish and Scottish music you know so I don't know maybe it's like certain that's a new thing yeah I, I don't know if it is could be but like it 
Yeah. It goes back to like, well, then from what time to what time are we saying is traditional? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess there's people who have very. But I, you know, I'm a, I like tradition, you know. Um, Me too. I'm a Virgo and... right. I like to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> My Capricorn moon, I like to have things be like, you know, traditional. Totally. I have my um I have my Venus and Capricorn, so like my aesthetics are very like traditional and I like old stuff. Yeah, and I also don't want that to be the end of it. You know, yeah. I think yeah. we can have innovation within traditions as long yeah. as they're respectful to the lineage and to the people who are really engaged with that. <laughs> I'm so curious, like people who are listening how this all lands and any experiences that people have had around these things and um, also feel really, really open to, to feedback. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your experiences either way, you know, anyway, um, in, in this regard, I think we're, we're all just kind of figuring it out as we are engaging with this renaissance because like we're going to have to continue to grapple with this if we're in the middle of a renaissance so yeah share your thoughts um cool well thanks and thanks rue for having this little um chat about all these wonderful things and thank you for sharing about your recent event and your storytelling and yeah it's such exciting stuff I'm grateful for this platform to to share in real time how I'm noticing culture emerging and the tensions that are that exist and getting to talk about them in real time and I really respect you Micah and your work and getting to hear from you and have this uh, as a sounding board is also part of my accountability so I appreciate that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah same to you for sure you know one of the things i'll say about renaissance is like you know in the 1500s when they were having kind of their classic their classical revival renaissance in the in in europe um i doubt very much they were thinking about cultural appropriation that they were engaging (laughs) with you know like they were definitely culturally appropriating from greece you know in a huge way and They certainly weren't thinking very critically about that, or maybe some people were, but I doubt it. And so, yeah, it's our job to kind of do this better (laughs) than last time. Um, I think so. And I feel that so strongly. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thank you, Rue. And um, yeah, we'll we'll meet up next time very soon. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Becoming a patron helps us pay for the costs associated with this podcast, and a third of your contribution goes to the indigenous-led women's organization Kunsikea Tamakoche in Wabanakik, so-called Vermont. There's a link to our Patreon in the show notes. Thanks.